Welcome to Warsaw Evangelical Presbyterian Church's podcast. We'd love to worship with you today. You know, I don't know if you've had the opportunity to see a movie. It's a little bit older now, but it's the movie Amazing Grace. Uh, It's really an amazing movie that is about William Wilberforce and his desire to see the abolition of slavery in Great Britain. Now, if you're familiar with the movie at all, you know that this was a long-fought, hardened battle against it. But finally, they come to February 23rd, 1807, and they hear the news of their victory where slavery has been abolished. Now, if you're familiar with the movie, as it comes to a close, William Wilberforce is on his way back towards his house with his good friend, Henry Thornton. And on their way there, he says to his good friend, Henry, he says, well, Henry, what is it that we should seek to abolish next? And his friend, who had no sense of humor, said, well, the lottery, I think. Now, the reason I share that with you as a way of introduction is because it reminds me so often of how we step out and we accomplish a goal and we can sometimes sit back and think that we've arrived. I can remember a number of years ago when we were in the process We were called out to plant a church down in Florida. And of course, how do you plant a church where there's no people, no money, nothing? There's no building. Well, Nicole and I knew that we were going to have to get our house ready because people were going to have to come over. This is going to be the way in which we began our church. And so we spent the first three weeks literally painting our house. That is all we did was paint our house to get it ready because we knew that we were going to have people over. Well, when the three weeks came to an end, I can still remember this so clearly. The two of us looked at each other and we said, well, now what do we do? (laughs) Like, we had finished our goal. We had painted our house. We were ready to start having people over, but we knew that that wasn't the end mission. It wasn't just to simply have a house that was ready to have it painted. Yes, we knew that we were going to have to be about having people over, building relationships in mission, but we knew that we couldn't just sit back, put up our feet, hang up a mission-accomplished banner and say, look at what we've done. We knew that there was more work that needed to be completed. In fact, I can still remember the advice that we were given when we finally came a year later to being able to have our launch service. There we were, we had the people gathered, we had our launch team assembled, we had our core team assembled, we had all of these people together, and it was a wonderful Sunday. I mean, it was so incredible to have all of these people together. But I remember the advice that we were given by a church planning coach. He said, It's not about the launch Sunday. It's about who comes back next week. And so I can still remember that that next week's sermon, it was entitled, We've Launched, So Now What? Because here's the reality. What they had said is true. He said, look, on that first Sunday, you're going to have a bunch of well-wishers there. You're going to have people who just want to be there to support you. They said, oh, by the way, you're going to have people there who have no interest of joining your church, but they want to check it out and they want to see what it's all about. 
He said, there are going to be people who are there who are genuinely interested in finding out more about your church, but they didn't like it, and so they're not coming back. And he said, look, the reality is, is it's not about who shows up that first Sunday. It's actually about who comes back. Because we could have, after that first Sunday, launched, right? We could have said, wow, look at what we've been able to do together. We could have hung up a mission-accomplished banner. But we knew that it wasn't about simply a first Sunday. It was what was going to happen after that. And my sense is that many of you have perhaps experienced the same sort of thing. Just because a goal gets accomplished doesn't mean that a mission gets accomplished. There is a huge difference. For any of you who have ever started a business, you know that you can have the grand opening, but it's actually not about that grand opening. It's about who's going to be a repeat customer, right? Who's going to continue to come back? You know that you can knock it out of the park with some presentation that you had to make it work. And your boss can say, good job, but I need you to do it again next week. And you know that there's more that always needs to be done. You and I experience this. You know, for many of you, as you're going back to school once again, you feel like you just finished up a few months ago. And so maybe you wanted to put up your feet and hang out for a little while. And now guess what? School has started again, and you're back at it once again. You and I experience this in our personal lives as well. You get married, but you know that it, the end goal is not about just getting married. It's actually about building a relationship as a husband, his wife. It's about growing together as a family. Having kids is not the end goal. It's actually about raising up children to send them out you want to pass the baton of faith you want to pass that baton of being good citizens and of working hard like all of these things it's not just about having children it's about raising them up and sending them out you know that starting a business isn't the end goal that you want to support your family maybe you want to have a business that you want to pass along to your children the danger is that when you and i experience a little bit of success, we want to sit back on our laurels. We want to coast. We want to think that we've arrived, when in reality, there is so much more that actually needs to be done. And so the question becomes, how do you and I prepare for the long game? Right? How do you and I prepare future generations? How are we passing on the baton? How are we going about building something that ultimately is going to last. And that's what we're going to find as we continue on in our sermon series together on the book of Nehemiah. Andrew did such a wonderful job last week of reminding us of the distractions that the people had faced and the distractions that you and I can sometimes face in our own personal walk with Jesus Christ. And as we come to where we are going to be reading in 7 and 8 today, we discover that the people have finished the work on the wall. As he reminded us, it took 52 days to complete. And as of today, we've been talking about it for 50 days. So imagine in two more days, they will have completed the work on the wall. I think about my son at the Air Force Academy. They are redoing the chapel because they found all it's leaking and they found asbestos. It's going to take them at least five years, they said, to complete. 
right? And I joke because they're building a hotel out front that they'll probably be done with in a few months because, you know, it's going to bring in money as opposed to this chapel that's going to take forever to rebuild. Here they rebuild a wall in just 52 days. And I think what we're going to discover today is how the people worked and they continued at it. You know, we've, we've seen in the book of Nehemiah how they overcame organizational issues. They worked from the time the sun came up until the moon came out at night. You know, they worked through the distractions. They worked through the challenges inside and outside the walls. And they come to the place where they have finally finished the work. Mission accomplished, right? Time to put up their feet, relax. They've done what they have set out to do. But Nehemiah teaches us that there is a difference between finishing an assignment and finishing the mission, right? There's a difference between winning the battle and winning the war. Our, our own nation has yet to learn that you can topple governments, but if you don't change the hearts and minds of the people, when they are given the opportunity for free elections, they go back to what they know. And this is the danger that Nehemiah is facing. He knew, yes, we've accomplished building the wall, but this is only one small part of what actually needs to happen here. Remember, they are on God's mission. This is God's city. These are God's people. And what is happening here is going to function as a witness to the nations. You see, this was never just about rebuilding the physical wall around Jerusalem. It is actually about the spiritual renewal of the people of God. And chapters 7 and 8 teach us about how Nehemiah goes about making sure that people's hearts have been spiritually renewed. And beloved people, I want us to keep in mind, we have been talking about and kind of slowly laying before you, yes, we're going to be making changes to our sanctuary Yes, we eventually want to make changes to our building behind us to make it more accessible to the community. But beloved people, it is not about simply rebuilding a church structure. It is not about having a sign outside that says WEPC. The greatest signpost we have is you. You being the people of God on the mission of God. That is what is going to change our community. That is what is going to change our world. And so ultimately, this is about a spiritual renewal of the people. And this is what we're going to be talking about together today. Now, if you're following along and you want to take some notes, here's the first thing that I want us to see. Chapter 7. When we get to chapter 7, it is about the physical return of the people. The physical return. You know, we've spent some time all the way back in week 1 talking about the history of the Jewish people, how they've arrived at where we are at this point in the story. And you have to remember that up until this point, Jerusalem, God's city, has been in ruins for at least 100 years. 
The city is in shambles. The wall has been torn down. The city has fallen apart. The temple had been destroyed. It was a shell of its former glory. The people of Israel have been scattered. But now there have been a number of returns. There's been the return to rebuild the city, the return to rebuild the wall, the return to rebuild the temple. But the city was not inhabited yet. It still was just that shell of its former glory. And so we see the way in which Nehemiah goes about rebuilding the people. And notice that, first of all, it begins with the appointment of godly leaders. If you want to see a, something be built and something grow, what he's saying is, look, you've got to have godly leaders. Notice what it says, by the way, in chapter 7, verses 1 to 2, it said, after the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. Remember what Andrew was reminding us of last week is that when the city was taken over and people were, were taken captive by the Babylonians and, and later the Persians, they took some of the best and brightest that Jerusalem had to offer. I mean, think of men like Daniel. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Think of people like Nebuchadnezzar or like Nehemiah. All of them had been taken away. And what was left in place were these puppets of these rulers. And there was a leadership vacuum that existed in Jerusalem. Nehemiah knew if there is going to be a revival taking place in Jerusalem, God is going to have to raise up godly leadership and he was going to have to be the one to appoint them. And I love, look at the type of people that Nehemiah says he's looking for. It was men of integrity and men who feared God. By the way, this isn't the first time that we see this laid out for us in the Old Testament. You know, in Exodus chapter 18, verse 21, when Jethro is advising Moses, what did he say? But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain. Notice phrases like fearful, faithful, trustworthy. By the way, do you, do you know what Jethro's name means in Hebrew? It means excellence. It means overflow and abundance. I mean, like literally, he is offering to Moses leadership excellence. He's saying, look, if, if you want to see an abundance in leadership, this is the type of people that you need to look for. And by the way, it's no different. When you get to, to the New Testament, in the book of Acts, in chapter 6, verses 3 to 5, it says, Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and of wisdom. And then it says, This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of the faith and Holy Spirit. And in Timothy and Titus, we see these examples laid out for us of what godly leadership looks like. If there is going to be a spiritual renewal of the people, Nehemiah knows that there has to be leadership 
excellence. And we know this as a church. So often we've heard the phrase that everything rises and falls on leadership. We hear the phrase at our last church, speed of the leader, speed of the team, right? That you and I need to go about finding and equipping good elders and deacons because ultimately they're going to be the ones who are leading out in the life of the church. And so notice the types of qualities that God is looking for. People who are trustworthy, people who are faithful, people who fear God. When we think about leading in the life of the church, it is not about a popularity contest. It is about people who are seeking to follow after God. God. So it's, it's really about finding and equipping good spiritual leaders. Notice as well, it required protection. This is the second thing. It required protection. Look at what verse 3 says. I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the door and bar them. Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their own houses. Nehemiah understands just because the city has been rebuilt, the walls around the city have been rebuilt, it doesn't mean that they are going to be bulletproof. He says, look, keep the doors locked at, sun, at sunrise. Now, why, why is this? You probably need to understand. Um, oftentimes in those days, they would open the gates of the city at daybreak so that people could come into the city, they could begin trading. But what Nehemiah is saying is, don't open the gates when most of the city is still asleep. Wait. Wait until the sun is hot out, till the sun has risen, and the people have stirred from their slumber. That way, if the gates are open at 6 a.m. already and everybody's still asleep, the enemy can come in and destroy what God has built. And so he's saying, Wait. Just wait so that we can protect the, the city. What we have to recognize is the enemy is always seeking to destroy what God has built. And if you and I are not continually saying, how do we protect ourselves? Just because the wall gets built doesn't mean that there aren't enemies that are still outside that don't want to see what's inside be destroyed. And, and just because we're building up what God wants doesn't mean that the enemy is going to say, well, okay, I'm just going to stay away. I don't want to have anything to do with them. The enemy is still going to seek to attack what it is that God is building. So we have to continue to fight. We have to continue to remember the faithfulness of God. Because here's what happens is when we forget, we suddenly find ourselves falling away. You know, all you have to do is look at the history of the Jewish people and you see this over and over and over again, right? The people, they would be faithful for a season. They wouldn't pass it along to the next generation. They would slowly begin to fall away. God would raise up a nation to overtake them. They would be taken off into captivity. And then what would happen, right? The people would cry out to God. God would raise up a judge and he would deliver them. And for a little while, they would be faithful again. And then suddenly they would begin to fall away. And you see this pattern play out over and over again in the book of Judges. And what that means is that you and I need to protect what God has started it's so easy for us to take like one step forward and two steps back. We have to continue to fight for the things of God. Otherwise, the, 
what can happen is we become apathetic. And we begin to forget God's goodness and faithfulness. And so we appoint good and, and godly leadership, and then we think about the way in which we have to protect what it is that God has started. And notice third, that there is a physical repopulation. Right? There, there is a physical repopulation happening. Notice, by the way, what it says in verses 4 to 5. It says, now this city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it. And the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So my God put it in my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registration by families. I found the genealogical record of those who had been the first to return. And this is what I had found written there. Nehemiah, that the gates have been put in place. The walls have been rebuilt. But he knows that just because walls are built and a gate is in place, if there's no people there to protect it, the, the enemy can still come in and overtake the city. He also understands if there's no people in the city to actually maintain it, there's not going to be anything to pass it along to. You've got to have people there. Those people have to be having children there, right? They've got to continue the work in the city. Otherwise, it will not continue. That, that's the truth. If you don't repopulate it, others are going to move in. This is how churches change. It's how communities change. It's, it's how cultures change. And if we don't continue to call back people to what God has started, it eventually falls apart. You know, we've talked about this before. One of the fastest growing segments of the population are what's known as the nuns. People who claim no religious affiliation whatsoever. And, and if we're not passing along our faith to the next generation, what's going to happen, right? They, they, they always say the church is one generation away, right, from, from extinction. Uh, now, I'm not an alarmist like that, but I think it is wise for us to remember if we're not passing along the faith to the next generation, who, who is going to be here to, to be in this building, to be a witness here in this community? And so we have to continue to fight for the things of God, calling people back to the things that matter. And by the way, what we see here, if you go through the next 70 verses, lay out all the different people who have returned. And by the way, this just mirrors what Ezra chapter 2 has already said. Right? So there's already been some of this return that's been happening. And you see all of these names that are listed, and you wonder like, is this just like wasting space, taking up space in the Word? Of course, we know God's not going to waste space by explaining all of these different people. They, they all matter. They are all significant because they all explain these people that God is calling back together. Here's what's interesting is when you see all of these different names that are listed, it's estimated that only 2% of the people who were taken off into captivity actually returned to Jerusalem. Like 2% that it said, you know what, I'm willing to go back and to rebuild. To rebuild the wall, to rebuild the city. I'm willing to go back and to repopulate the city. You would think, right, people were like, I can't wait to get back to Jerusalem. But in many ways, perhaps life had become easier in Babylon. It was going to be hard work repopulating a city. And so many chose to stay back. 
And, and beloved people, I, I think that is so important for us to remember. As we seek to rebuild and to build what God has started here, and think about it, as the culture around us continues to change, for many of us, it's going to be easier to live in Babylon than to fight for the things of God. And so we have to say, you know what, I know that standing up for the truth of God's word is going to be difficult, but I know it's what I need to do. I know it's what God is calling me to do. To remember the faithfulness of God. In fact, if you look at, at the book of Malachi, there's, that's listed there, it's to be a people of remembrance. How are you and I listed in that book. Listen to what it says in verses 16 and 17. It says, Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his own son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. And this is why it is so important for us to remember that ultimately the book of Nehemiah is not about just a physical return of the people. Ultimately, it is about a spiritual revival and a spiritual renewal that is happening in Jerusalem. It's about the spiritual return. By the way, you get to verses 70 and 73 that, that you see how this physical and spiritual return has led to the people to the place where they're willing to put their money where their mouth is. In fact, they, they give over 400 pounds of gold to the work. They give one and one-third tons of silver to the work. They give, they give bowls and garments to the priests and, and to the players and to the musicians. And I want you to know, none of this was done under compulsion where they said, you have to do this. It was the people's response. This is what they wanted to do, to bring these things before God. They said, you know what? We want to give of our time. We want to give of our talent. We want to give of our treasure. We want to give of our very best to God. You know, one of the things that they often say is that you can tell a lot about what you value most by looking at your checkbook. Now, I don't know how many of you even balance a checkbook anymore, right? You know, you go to your phone app, you see what's in your bank. Look at it, and you see what you value most based on what you spend the most on. And notice, for the people of Jerusalem, they were starting to say, God, you come first. And notice, all you have to do is flip over to chapter 8, and you see what? There is a hunger for the Word of God. There's a hunger for the Word of God. Notice what it says in verses 1 to 3. It says, When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, 
which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. All the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Understand this. When the people understood who they were in God's eyes, what was their response? Their response was to say, we want to read the book of the law. They wanted to say, God, we know who we are. We know how great you are, so we want to be reminded of your greatness. Notice, the people did not come together to be entertained. They came together to hear the word of the law read to them. And think about it. They came from 6 a.m. until noon. I know, right? We've said this before. You think our services are long? Like, for six hours, they were just ready to hear God's word spoken over them. That's what they were doing together. But as they heard the word being proclaimed, they recognized who they were. They recognized who God was. They recognized how they were supposed to live. And they knew how they were supposed to trust God completely. It's from the word that they recognized how they were supposed to protect what it is that God has started. You know, one of the things that has always stuck with me from our church planning days was a coach. And this coach said to me, God is more interested in refining who you are than in building a church. He was saying, Aaron, God is going to build his church whether you do it or not because God is God. But God is more interested in refining you in this process. And I think it's true. We need to remember ultimately God, God is going to build his church. And I want to be somebody who's a part of being with God in that journey. But I know that God is more interested in refining me. Because the more I am refined, the more I'm going to want to come in line with him. And the more I'm going to be, want to be about what his purposes in business are. And so the question is, how are you and I being refined by the word? Hungering for the word. I mean, if you want God to build you up, you have to hunger for the word of God. Like, if you want to be built up as a man or a woman, like, You have to hunger for the Word of God. If you want to know how you're supposed to handle family life and children and business, you're supposed to hunger for the Word of God. If we want to be a church that says we want to bring joy to our city, I'm going to tell you, it is not about great preaching and it's not even about great music. It's about people hungering for the Word of God. And it's got to start with us. We have to be the people who are saying, I hunger it. I want this for my own life. Because the more you and I desire to live under the word, the more we're going to see change happening here within our own church and within our our community. So that's where we begin. But notice, second, if there's going to be a spiritual return, it's about the fear of God. It's about the fear of God. 
I'm going to invite us to do something. If you are able, would you please stand? Hear what verses 4 and 5 say. That's right, you can stretch if you're like, oh, this is getting long, Aaron. All right, Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masiah. And on his left were Pedaiah, Mishael, Melchijah, Hashum, Hashbadadah, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. You can go ahead and be seated. Now, let's play on words. What do we mean when we say it is the fear of God? Not about knees knocking, not about being scared of Almighty God. It is reverential awe. It is reverential fear of God. And I want you to think about what they're doing. They've built a high platform. And Ezra and these priests go up on this high platform to, to read the law. Now, I want you to think about this, because certainly if you've ever been in an old church, you'll see sometimes that like, there's like this, this place where the, the pastors and the priests go, and it's, it's this raised up area. And sometimes there'll be like a roof over it. And yes, it's meant for projection, right? So that you can hear the word being proclaimed, and it can go out but it also serves symbolically as another function. As the word is raised up, the people come under the word. That's, that's what this is about, right? Because Ezra is there. He's, he's reading the law, and the people are listening. They're standing in awe of it, and they're coming under it. That's, that's what's happening here. And, and what happens as the people are coming under the law? They say, God, speak to me. God, I humble myself before you. There, there's this fear and respect of the Lord because His law is being read. And notice, by the way, in verse 6, it says that they bowed down low. When you get to verse 6, it says, Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen. Amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They wept because they realized how far they had fallen from God's ideals for them. But even in their weeping, they're encouraged. Ezra and Nehemiah, like, no, this isn't a time of weeping. This isn't the end. He's, they're saying, this is the beginning of what God wants to do. You won't see it on the screen, but it says in verses 11 and 13, the Levites calm the people saying, be still. This is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. They were lifting up the law. And as the law was lifted up, they were coming underneath it and they were saying, Amen, Amen. Literally, it's a phrase that means, so let it be. They're saying, Lord, so let it be. 
If you want to be a person who is living differently, who is living as God would have us live, it is about lifting up the word of the Lord in our hearts and us desiring to come under it and to say, Lord, I fear you. And so I want to live as you would have me live. And notice, what do they do? They respond. They respond to the truth of God. It's this last point, the truth of God. If you look at chapter, at the rest of, of chapter 8, you see that the people respond. And notice, they don't respond by saying, nice message today, Pastor Ezra. That was really good. <laughs> right? The types of things that sometimes we'll hear, nice message, Pastor Aaron. No, what do the people do? They're, they're responding to the things that they have heard proclaimed over them. And in verses 13 to 18, if you read it, you see what it is that they do. They weren't just listening to the words and saying nice words. They actually took it to heart and they began to live differently. They were reminded of what is known as the festival of Sukkot or the festival of booths or the festival of the shelters. And it was a reminder of when the people of Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years, they lived in shelters. And while they lived in those booths, God provided for them. Later, it became as the festival of the harvest. When they would go and harvest all the food and the grain, it became a season and a time for them to remember the faithfulness of God. But here's what happened. Just as the city fell into ruins, so did their keeping of the festival of Sukkot. Their spiritual lives were in shambles. And it was time for them to get it right again. And so what did they do? They built shelters. They lived in them. They celebrated that the exiles were returning. They were celebrating that God was bringing about this incredible harvest. They celebrated the fact that their hearts were returning to the Lord. Ultimately, it was about a return of the people. And beloved people, I don't know what part of your life feels like it's been so far removed that you need God to do a reviving work and to bring you back. If there's a part of you that feels like it's wandered, that to be able to return. I mean, maybe some of you, you know what it's like. You give your life over to Jesus and like you hunger for the word of the Lord and you are reading it every day and it becomes so important to you. And then over time, we just start to drift. And it, we start reading it less and less. The passion has dwindled. And maybe today is a day where you're saying, God, I need to get in, I need to be retuned with what your desires are for me. Maybe in some way you said, I've made it about the end goal of building something instead of building the heart that God wants to build in me. Maybe for some of you, you've gotten to the place where you've become apathetic because you've said, mission accomplished. It's all, I'm, I'm done, I, I'm finished. Instead of saying, God, what more do you want to do in me? This is why ultimately, as I've said already, yes, we can make physical changes to our church structure. We can say we want to be more welcoming to our community. We want to be able to expand the work that God is doing here. But if we simply make changes to our structure, because ultimately, you and I know, we are the church. If we don't make changes to our heart and what God is trying to do, then it will all be for nothing. 
the greatest signpost is you. So the question is, what is God building in you? And how do you want to live your life differently? So I think it's a wonderful thing that we have a time today to say, how can I serve? How can I see beyond just myself to give to the needs of this community, to give to the needs of the community around us? God, how do you want me to use my gifts? Not just simply for me, but Lord, for you. In many ways, I would say this is a sermon series. If you, have, if you don't pick up on this, this is what I pray you pick up on. It's a sermon series about getting our own house in order. Because if we want to be a church that sees the harvest that God wants to bring, it's not about physical changes. It's about the heart changes that God wants to do. And so what's the harvest that God wants to do in your heart? What changes does he want to bring? Where, where is our passionate spirituality? Say, Lord Jesus, you are the most important thing in my life. That's what's going to bring the change to your own life. So it's going to bring the change to our church. And I pray, beloved people, that we're willing to live into that. The spiritual return, the revival of his people.